that beginning in February, we will start uh, setting out sign-up sheets for small groups that will run until summer. Now, a little distinction that I make between small groups and a Bible study, which I think from what I've observed kind of fits Harvest as well, is that a major difference between a Bible study and a small group is that a Bible study is something that um, is kind of open invitation. For instance, if a person is available on the Tuesday morning, uh, if a a lady is available on Tuesday morning, that might be there one week, and if they're not available the next Tuesday, but they're available the Tuesday after that sometime, they'll they'll come again and, and, and study the scriptures with the ladies, and That's what I mean by open invitation, whereas a small group is something that a small group of people are committing to for this period of time. We're going to meet, say, every week at this time, and and they agree together on what it is that they're studying during the week and then coming together and sharing with each other on that. And so, not to say it's closed invitation, but it's a group that has committed to meet together. They've made an agreement together. You know, this is how often we'll meet, and that's such. So that's kind of a distinction that we make, and that I make, and I think Harvest makes as well, between a Bible study with open invitation and a small group that is a period of time that's open to people joining it, and, and then they may, they're, they're agreeing together on kind of some ground rules, I guess you'd call it. Um, and so the small groups will be taking sign-ups for in a few weeks here and, and we'll be listing off for you the small groups and where they're meeting and who's facilitating those and an idea of what they'll be studying together. But uh, this week there is a sign-up sheet for the ladies' Bible study uh, on the back table there. Now, ladies are welcome to be in both just as men are welcome to be in a Bible study and small group. Um, so just to kind of let you know a distinction there on those. Uh, let's bow our heads as we open up the scriptures together. Father, we thank you that one day we will be a part of singing your love forever. And that's not the image of all of us strumming harps on clouds. But in everything that we do for your kingdom, for eternity, in those assignments that we're given and in the work that that you take glory in, we'll be proclaiming you singing of your love and, and being a part of your kingdom for eternity. And we thank you for that. And we get little tiny sin-laden glimpses of that when we get together. Uh, but we're grateful for that as well. Father, I just pray that you would visit us this morning with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill me with your Spirit, that you would uh, work through your Word, and Lord, that you would give me your words to share this morning uh, that would bring glory to you and that would show how great you are and that would show the glory of Christ. Lord, I just pray for that um, visitation from you this morning in a way that without it, we would be left scratching our heads. Uh, We need your Holy Spirit. We need you to illuminate our minds to your truth and to break through 
um, what we face in this life of the world, the flesh, and our enemy that, that so, is so eager to distract us from the truth. Lord, we're dependent on you, and we reach out to you this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we're looking this morning at the idea that Christ is our everything. That he is our everything. I, I really feel that, that part of the reason why the Lord laid Colossians on my heart to be uh, the first book that we go through together is to set that standard that it is all about Christ. We are his body and it is all about him. Unfortunately for those that are not a part of the body of Christ, it's still all about him and they just don't realize it. They just don't realize it. So we'll just dive in here. I wouldn't, uh... So getting back to um, verses 24 through 29 of chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 is where we're jumping back into this week. He says, Paul speaking to the Colossian church, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So, so what is he doing as he's making the word of God fully known? Or he's describing this aspect of the word of God that he's making fully known? The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known. To who? To the saints. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my fa me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And, and who is this Christ? In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard of the story of the man who was camping and, and it's a part of a lot of men enjoy, who enjoy camping and fishing. There was the idea of fishing for his dinner. You know, going to, there's some satisfaction I know to reeling in dinner, you know, and, and getting it ready for the frying pan over that campfire. And, and this man, that's what he was, he was about. And, um, and as he was starting to fish, he noticed a man um, just down the shore a little bit that, that was having a lot of luck. I mean, this guy 
was, must have been just a really experienced fisherman because he watched him reel in about five fish before he had even gotten a nibble. So he's thinking, well, maybe he's fishing in the right place or something. And so he sidled up to this guy, you know, kind of to make conversation, but he wanted to know where was this guy casting and what was he using, you know, to do so well. And, and he was really surprised to look down in this guy's bucket and there wasn't anything there. You know, he's thinking, this guy must just be doing this for sport. You know, maybe at least if I have no luck, I can get him to reel one in for me and I can have dinner. And so the man sees him reel another one in and it was a, it was a really nice about, you know, 10 inch long something or other. I'd, I'd be wrong if I told you what it was. <laughs> and, and, and takes it off the hook, looks at it, shakes his head and throws it back in. This guy says to him, he's like, boy, you're pretty picky. What are you doing? He's like, I would have been happy to, to, to eat that tonight. The guy says, I have a problem. I keep reeling in these 8 and 10 inch fish and I only have a 6 inch pan. <laughs> Obviously, we're thinking, what an idiot. You know? But I find that that is our problem with Christ so often. I'm going to read a response from Tim Tebow that was in USA Today that was given on an ESPN show later. But it came from a statement that was made by Jake Plummer, a former quarterback of the Denver Broncos. And speaking of Tim Tebow, Jake Plummer said, Uh, And I'll just look at this to make sure I got this right. He said he wished Tim Tebow would curb his references to Jesus Christ and his faith. I would argue that if he knows Christ, Mr. Plummer, he needs to get a bigger frying pan. That he is not taking in at all, the bigness and the priority and the everything that Christ is meant to be, that Christ is. And that is why when he speaks of Jesus Christ, he speaks of him in terms of somebody that someone like Tebow needs to curb his references to and, and his religion. And that is so much of what Paul is getting to here. And I'll I'll read for you later uh, Tim's response. We looked last week at the fact that uh, we looked at Paul as our messenger of mysterious grace. And I'm not going to dip too much into here. But there's there's important things to the context here. And, And we looked at the idea that Paul was moving through sufferings for people like the Colossians' sake. People like us. We looked at the fact that Paul describes himself as of, that he's doing these things for the body of Christ of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. It was given to, to him for the Colossian church. It was given to Paul for us as well because Paul had received a special stewardship from God as the apostle to the Gentiles that would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we looked a little bit at the fact that that this was not a common expectation 
among those members of the er, the, the early members of the early church being Jews that Gentiles would be able to know Christ without having become Jews first, without having come under the Mosaic law. And we looked at the fact that, that Paul was much more able to go through the suffering that he was going through because he saw it as a part of furthering the stewardship that he had been given as the apostle to the Gentiles. And that it was his heart beat for them that they could would know Christ as their Savior and that they would grow in that. So we looked at the, the first idea of this mystery was that we Gentiles could know Christ. You see them that he says, this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints has this first aspect. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. He's, just, he's labeling here the amazing greatness that they never would have thought that, that God would be accepting people without them first seeking to appease his wrath through following a law. That he would give us the, the invitation to come boldly before his throne of grace to find grace and help for those things that would keep us from being able to come boldly before the throne of grace. Because we're coming to him in the total righteousness of Christ our Savior. This was, this was um, mind-blowing. For them, it's something that we've come to accept and, and love as those that aren't having to go through the Mosaic Law. So the second aspect to this, this mystery that we looked at, where he says, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is kind of where we left it. The second component was that Christ dwells in those who truly know him. So this kind of becomes our first idea this week. This idea that Christ is our message of saving grace. Christ is our message of saving grace. And when we, I hope that in some ways you see this morning that if we don't see as Christ as being everything for us, then the problem is not in Christ. The problem is the idea that we need to get a bigger frying pan. We simply need to open our minds a little bit bigger, open our lives a little bit bigger, open out the aspects of our lives to just how big Christ is. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, My Heart, Christ's Home. But the, the book is kind of a discipleship book that describes our lives as being like a home. And Christ is a guest that we welcome into that home. And each chapter of the book describes him moving into a different area of that home. Even to that closet that we just kind of thought, well, this is where I keep things. The reason why I keep things in this closet is so that I, I don't have to show them to you. But at a point in the book, Christ is saying, no, I want in that closet too. And the freedom that the person experiences as Christ has freedom to roam and he, and he makes the whole home his home, dwelling in that home. So Christ is our message 
of saving grace. When he says Christ in you, this mystery is Christ in you. He's saying Christ in you, Colossian believers. In you, Gentiles. This mystery is that Christ can be in you. I mean, us Jews were waiting for him. For centuries, we were preparing for him. We were waiting for this Messiah. But this mystery is how amazing that he would shed his grace on the Gentiles and this mystery, Christ in you, in us. And that's why this context is so significant to understand. I was watching a forum um, online about what the church can be doing for the issue of slavery in the world. And a lot of people were sharing very good things. Things like uh, looking into free trade products where people are, we know that people are being paid a fair wage. And looking into things like um, halfway houses that help uh, um, women that are, are saved, pull, uh, allowed, helped out of the sex trade and things like that. And one of the people just felt like they needed to share this. And they said, all these things are good, but we can't lose sight of this. These people need Christ. These people need Christ dwelling in them and remaking them and, and, re, and redeeming them. And I so appreciated that. And that's what Paul is boiling it down here. It's, it boils down to the fact that we have the great opportunity, but also the great need to have Christ within us, Christ dwelling in us. It is a personal experience and presence of Christ in the individual and in all believers. It's a unique, but yet one-time, but yet ongoing experience in which a person recognizes that they need Christ's righteousness to count on their behalf and they recognize that that was done and, and it's because of their sins that they have been separated from God. And upon asking the Lord to, and the Lord, you know, moving in them to ask him to, to put the, the saving and resurrected work of Christ on their behalf, that at that point the Holy Spirit takes up residence in them. And we call that Christ in you. And, and it's a once for all and yet ongoing experience between a person and their savior and it's a relationship that picks up at that point and grows and matures and keeps going this idea of christ in you is amazing and it's described here as the hope of glory what an amazing assurance to have christ within us romans 8 tells us that that the holy spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of god it's a hope of the fact that you are with me now, but one day I will be with you. One day my flesh will be removed. I'll receive a glorified body that is not a, a lightning rod for temptation. Temptation will be removed. The world will be redeemed, and I will be with you. But right now you're with me. You're in me. We're walking through this together. What an amazing opportunity to have Christ, this one who is described as the fullness of God, dwelling within us. 
That is this mystery. That is the amazing thing that is the Christian life. What an amazing message that we have. Your creator, we would say to our friends or family, your creator has set everything up for you to be able to commune with him again. And and it's not a matter of you going to him, but he is ready to come to you and set up shop in you and set up a long work in you that's not based on, well, I hope you finally, you know, work this out between he and you and finally achieve something. It's set on a relationship that is fully accepted, fully redeemed, fully, uh, full access right from the beginning. I always love those, those pictures, you know, that, that you see in a magazine or something like that. And, and, uh, you know, maybe it's of a kitchen or maybe it's of a car or all these things. And it says starting at X amount of dollars. You know, but that's not the picture they're showing you. The picture they're showing you is all the bells and whistles, right? It's kind of like when you walk through a model home or something like that. It's like all the upgrades. And they're saying, These mo- this starts at 150000 But that, that home you're walking through is $250,000 you know, to build it that way. And, but in our relationship with Christ, it's not like you get your foot in the door and hopefully you make it. You know, hopefully it's not like that bottom level of a pyramid scheme, you know. It's full access, full relationship, full opportunity right there and for the rest of our lives. What an amazing, what an amazing gift of Christ in us as the hope of glory. Now, if you recall, Paul's work was taking the gospel to the Gentiles without them having to come to God through the Mosaic law. Uh, so let's look at this in light of the idea of being Gentiles and not Jews. A major purpose of the Mosaic Law was to give God's people a godly culture. I heard a quote one time when I was, um, when I was reading uh, about the, the, uh, the difference between the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus. And this person said, the book of Exodus, which is the story of God taking his people and them exiting out of Egypt physically was about God getting his people out of Egypt. And the book of Leviticus, which is the book of God's law, was about him getting Egypt out of his people. And, and that's an aspect to the Mosaic law that's helpful to understand that God's people needed a godly culture again. And, and that's why there's so many... If you read through the book of Leviticus, it's like, you know, when to do this, where to do this. You know, some of them were just kind of like, this is how you keep a clean camp. And, and so it was about him getting the, the ungodly culture out of his people. The Mosaic law was attached to the Mosaic covenant that God had made with his people. The covenant in the blood of a lamb. Uh, but we have, were given a new covenant promise. And I've referred to this before in Jeremiah 31. And this where God promised. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I will put my law 
within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest. And by know the Lord, they would have been saying, Know the law. He's saying, For they will know my law. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So we are a part of a new covenant. This is why, as I mentioned before, in Jesus, when Jesus is sitting with his disciples and they are uh, participating in what we know as the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Contrasted with Moses at Mount Sinai with the, the, with the law saying, this is the covenant between you and God in blood and he's using the lamb's blood. We are part of a new covenant with God that he promised in which he would take his law and put it within us when we accept Christ as our savior in the form of the Holy Spirit convicting us and guiding us and leading us into the truth. We don't have the Mosaic law hanging over us. We have the Holy Spirit guiding us convicting us. And this is how Galatians 2 describes God's law in our hearts. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We have the Lordship of Christ working from within us rather than the law hanging over us. He moves in our hearts to no longer even consider it our life anymore, but to give ourselves up to him gladly. We begin to see our lives as a stewardship to be lived for him. Just the same way that Paul had been given a special stewardship to reach the Gentiles, we start when, when Christ is in us and, we, and where he's going to move us to is seeing ourselves as crucified with him. It's no longer I who live, but it's him who live in me. Our very life becomes a stewardship that we're just managing, but he owns it. We start to live for the one who gave himself up for us. This is what he intends to do when it's Christ in us. There's a legend that I read about one time of of a face, uh, well, let's start with a town that was waiting for their hero. And they, they had economic problems. They had raiders that would come in and, and, and uh, steal things from them. And, and they were waiting for their hero. And there was a legend of the town that the face that was on the side of this mountain, that one day the person that matched that face that was carved into the side of the mountain, one day that person would come to town and would be their hero and would, would save the town from all these things. And there was a farmer that, that his land was, was within uh, eyeshot of the face on the side of this mountain. And every day he would go out and just look at that face and study it and, and, and long for the time when that hero would come. And he looked at that face in the hopes that he might be even one of the first ones that would recognize the hero when he would come. 
And as the legend goes, the story goes, that one day, year after year of this man gazing on that face, one of the days that if he went to town to get supplies, the people started whispering to each other and grabbing each other and pointing. And, and they were amazed because as time went on, without him realizing it, that as he looked upon that face, his face became that face. And he had become that hero. And, and you, you don't want to take that too far, but the idea here is this. That we start to make Christ who is in us more real. And I want to define more real. The more time we spend with him. What I mean by more real is that idea of I am crucified with him. It's no longer I who live, but him who lives in me. He already lives within us. He is who he is. But we start to realize just who he is and what it is that he wants to do in our life as we spend that time with him, as we spend that time gazing on him. How do we better know him? The same way we better know anyone. By spending time. By talking with him. Every issue that's brought into your life, every issue that you deal with, has been given to you by him to further your relationship with him. And some of the things that we go through, it may be just for the only reason to say, Lord, I'm going through this. Would you go through it with me? And that brings such glory to him and it moves us further and he starts to mold how we see the issues that we're going through in our life as being for the opportunity of developing our relationship with him. It's about, it's about learning who we are in Christ. And I, and I don't want to open up that can of worms right now. But as parents, we should be looking for, for those, those children of ours who maybe have prayed to receive Christ as their Savior, we should be looking for an inner drive that they have to make this Christ what he should be in their lives. If he's there, he wants to grow. He wants to get bigger. He wants to take over more. Why? Because he's, he's doing what makes sense. He deserves to be bigger. He deserves to be that fullness of God in bodily form within us, in our lives. So Christ is our message of saving grace, but Christ is also our method of maturing grace. Notice what Paul says. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He is our very method of how we mature. Notice here the everyone's in this statement. I have a quote here from a commentator. It said, the Gnostic, this false teaching that the Colossian church was, was dealing with, the Gnostic spoke of blind faith for the many, but higher knowledge for the few. Paul declares the fullest wisdom is offered to all alike. And this might be the biggest point that Paul is making in this verse. As you notice him repeating it. We proclaim, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In our individualist society, this is kind of a good thing. We kind of assume that Christ is there for everyone. But the Gnostics were shaping a religion after man's ideas. 
Okay, so when we create something, we create a class system or a caste system. We create an upper class, a middle class, a lower middle class, a lower class, all these things. But, and you can tell that the Gnostics were designing this after man's idea of kind of a class system. Okay, we have a hierarchy of spirituality. Isn't it amazing that God basically had two groups in mind, Jews and Gentiles, and he really used his relationship with the Jews to, to formulate man's relationship with God and, and, to, and to make that um, something that was known and great in the world. And then when he opened the floodgates and opened that to the Gentiles, it, it wasn't like, okay, and now we'll give that to the upper class of the Gentiles and then a couple centuries later it'll trickle down to the middle class. It wasn't that. It was open the floodgates and now it's available to the whole world. I mean, that's God's way of doing things. So that everyone is very key here. Another quote here, when Paul says, it's him that we proclaim. He is our method. He is our method. A quote from another commentator said, Paul preached not a system of doctrine so much as a person, the Lord Jesus. We saw, as we've been moving through chapter one, we're like, no, yeah, no, duh. I mean, that in, order, that in all things, he might be preeminent. He might be the supreme being. In him, the fullness of God makes its home. We've, we've been seeing that. But I want you to notice in chapters, chapter two, one through five, we're just kind of dipping into that these first five verses of chapter two, I want you to notice how he plays out and how he describes Christ. In whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. No wonder it's him that we proclaim. Paul describes him here, are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can imagine how this would have resonated with the Gnostic teachers or with the people that were being tempted by this deeper knowledge, this higher knowledge that these false teachers were promising. Paul lays it all out and says, listen, in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Christ is our everything. He is our source of all wisdom and knowledge. All, not just the little things, but the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Harvest will proclaim Christ. That is our method. We will proclaim Christ for those who need to know Christ as his Savior. We will proclaim Christ for those who need to grow. We will proclaim Christ for those who are going through a tough season of their life. Why? Because it's in him that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are his body. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his mouthpieces. He is our head. And our method is to proclaim him for certain. I want you to notice back here that the purpose of Paul's proclaiming Christ was that he and his, his co-workers might present everyone mature in Christ. By mature, I kind of uh, uh, corresponded with um, my, my boss from Rapid City a little bit on this. And, and um, because there was a term here that I, was, I wasn't sure if it was, it was significant or not or if it meant what I thought it meant and turned out it didn't. So I was glad I, that I dug into it a little bit. 
by he, he gave me a very good definition here of mature. He said, a state in which our moral character and our do- daily conduct match what we believe. And what do we believe? We believe Christ. We believe Christ. A, maturity is a state in which our moral character and our daily conduct match what we believe. Now, if you hang out with my family, don't com- don't, this is what I would do. Okay, If you hang out with me and my family, don't compare who you are with your kids when no one's around and in your most frustrated moment to how I am with my kids when you are around and it's not a frustrating moment. Okay, The reason why I say don't compare that is because I, I have maturing to do. I see and I get frustrated when, when I'm frustrated with my children or frustrated with something around the home and, um, and, and I think, I would never be like this if somebody was around. And what I'm seeing there is a need for maturing. I will have a need for maturing until the day I die. And, and by, by a need for maturing, I'm saying that what I believe and my conduct is not matching up completely. And as I mature, what I believe and my conduct are matching up more and more. And what's important for my children in those moments is for me to label that. Okay? It's for me to say, you know what? That wasn't right of me. That wasn't the right thing for me to say. That's what confession is saying, let's just agree on something. This wasn't right. And so I'm not going to screw my children up every time I, I, I blow up or something like that. But it's important for me to come back there and say, that is not how I should behave. And I'm sorry for that. Okay, so parents, so it's not about getting it right the first time. Everybody, anybody who says that they have or that they do is lying. Um, <laughs> but notice again, how Paul fur- further describes maturity later here in um, chapter 2, verse 2. He says um, his prayer for the Colossians, his hope is that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Proclaiming Christ is our method because he is also our measure. He is also our measure. Christ is our measure in the sense that he is our treasure. He is our measure in the sense that he is our treasure. And either Christ is our measure because he is our treasure, or Christ is our measure because he's our burden. If, if we are not growing in treasuring him, then this standard of this person that walked the earth and oh he was sinless and didn't do anything wrong and I'm supposed to live up to that that is a burden and that is not what he is meant to be if there's one word that I could label of what he's meant to be for us it is that he's meant to be our treasure and if he's not he's going to be our burden he's just going to be that law over us again he's meant to be treasured Paul writes to the Ephesians, when he's writing to the Ephesians, he describes maturity in this way when he's describing how uh, the pastor and others are, 
are equipping the saints for the work of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ is our measure. Christ is our definition of maturity. He's what it means to be a real man. He's what it means to be a real woman of God. Christ is maturing us when we want to please him more than have our way. He's maturing us when we want our our kids to love him. Not so that we can have a peace of mind, but so that they can realize how worthy he is of their love. And so they can love life because they love him. He's maturing us when we want not to give out of a sense of obligation, but because we want to be investing in what he is doing in the world. And we want to be able to to come before him in eternity and and see what it was that we invested with with the money that, that he put into our care during this life and we want to we look forward to offering that that to him in worship and thanking him that we are able to be a part of that with the finances that he gave us that's the reason why he wants us to give Christ is maturing us when we want to love his body the church and gather with them and praise each other and not and not get together and fight for some sort of personal legacy out of this building or out of this gathering. Those are just aspects of what it looks like for Christ to be maturing us. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now as a side, side note here, Paul is describing how he and his co-workers are working out the stewardship which he and they have taken on of proclaiming Christ to the Gentiles. And he divides these up, he divides proclaiming up into correction and instruction. But um, you may not have the responsibility of proclaiming Christ, but you have a job with the same outcome. And I love this. I want to just relate this to what he says later and we'll unpack this when we get to it later. But notice this. Paul says, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And later in 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That term admonishing is the same as the term warning. Isn't that interesting? We proclaim Christ. Colossians, let Christ dwell in you richly. As we're proclaiming Christ, we're warning and we're teaching. Colossians, teach and warm, warn one another. We do this in all wisdom. Colossians, do this in all wisdom. I mean, this is a pretty amazing connection. This is not just the pastor's job of teaching and instructing and, and, and admonishing one another and seeking to do that in wisdom. This is a major reason for something like small groups. And, and the facilitators, we, we just kind of started talking about this this morning. By facilitators, they are not teachers. But they're trying to, seeking to facilitate a group in which 
the body of Christ can share with each other in a way that they benefit each other from what they're learning, from what they're gleaning, from their relationship with the Lord. To accomplish this idea of teaching and admonishing one another. I really appreciated... um, uh, I'm getting to know a little bit Pastor Bill from First Assembly. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but he and his wife both developed cancer shortly after coming to Crawfordsville to pastor there. I mean, both of them. And as their, as their, their body there, and I can share this, it's something that he, you know, was public that he, he shared with them. They kept asking, what can we do for you? What can we do for you? And they said, you know, there's a lot of ways you can serve us, but I can tell you that one of the most important things that you can be doing right now is growing in your relationship with the Lord. Growing. Because that makes it obviously so much easier on us, but that's our heartbeat. That's our greatest desire for you. And that's what Paul is talking about, is that, We're to be in this work together, allowing Christ to minister to us, allowing his word, the word of Christ to richly dwell in us and not leaving it to the pastor or the elders to be teaching and admonishing. I mean, I I think that's an excellent thing to be doing during our break. You know, to be going and and encouraging and sharing something that we've learned um, and obviously, like I said, it's a great place for small groups. So Christ is, Christ is our method of maturing grace. Uh, so Tebow was, was brought up by Jake Plummer. And um, Jake Plummer mentioned that he just wished Tebow would curb his references to Jesus Christ and his faith. So Tebow was asked about this on ESPN's first take. And this is what Tim Tebow said. And he, and he gave respect to Jake and, and th- thought Jake had said some, some things about his quarterback play that was complimentary and he said that means a lot coming from him and, and I really appreciate, I mean, he's, a, he's a, a veteran. But in reference to his relationship with Christ, Tebow said, if you're married and you really love your wife, is it good enough to only say to your wife, I love you on the day you get married? Or should you tell her every single day when you wake up and every opportunity, my relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing in my life. So anytime I get the opportunity to tell him that I love him or given the opportunity to shout out on national TV, I'm going to take that opportunity. And so I look at it as a relationship that I have with him that I want to give him the honor and glory anytime I have the opportunity. That's what it looks like to treasure Christ. That's why, that's why in, in witnessing and sharing him with our, with our friends, 1 Peter says, set apart Christ as Lord. And what position does that put you in? Always being ready to give a defense. Being ready to give a defense is the place that we're put in when we have set him apart and treasured him as Lord. And, and Tim Tebow is, is just illustrating what happens when a person is treasuring Christ in the arena that they're in. So what impact does treasuring Christ make on me? A sin that can have its grip on me. Victory is not going to come from strictly duty of, okay, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do this. 
Freedom from bondage to that sin comes from treasuring Christ more than that sin. Treasuring Christ more than that fleeting pleasure. I'm going to be impacted by Christ as my supreme one. I'm going to feel a sense of obligation or a desire to glorify him. I'm going to be grieved when I miss out on fellowshipping with him as deeply as I can because I allowed that sin back into my life. I'm going to come to a place where it's a no-brainer that I'm going to choose to grow in my relationship with Christ rather than give in to this sin. That's how treasuring Christ becomes more important than a temptation that we're facing. So Christ is our message of saving grace and Christ is our method of maturing grace. And just real shortly here, Christ is our measure of empowering grace. Paul is referring when he says, for this I toil. For what? To present everyone that I'm dealing with mature in Christ one day. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's referring here to his imprisonment. He's referring to what he, what he gladly receives as a toil and a struggle with Christ's energy. He, he's describing this in athletic terms. You know, maybe you've seen the Nike commercial or the Reebok commercials where they're, they're showing the athletes just exercising and stuff, doing the rope thing and stuff like that and dribbling basketballs as somebody's beating them on the head or something. And, you know, at one point in the commercial, they're just, you know, uh, agonizing, struggling athletically. The only time I make sounds like that is when I'm picking something off the floor or getting up out of a couch, you know. <laughs> But just struggling and agonizing for, for a goal in mind is what he's talking about here. So, so notice where he gets his energy from. With all his energy. With all his energy. Literally, it's I labor contending with all Christ's energy in which he has powerfully, has powerfully energized me. So I was, I was going to go back here and look back at Colossians verse 11 where Paul prays that you may be strengthened with all power and look a little bit at that, but we're going to skip out of that. We have a tendency to think that we're supposed to work with our energy first. You know? And when we come to the end of our line, then I must rely on God. You know, we have this tendency to talk to everybody about what we're going through and then when we're done talking with everybody... I guess I'll pray about this. You know? This is an important way that we're meant to mature in him. Is, is to start to confront every issue, like I said, as, okay, I'm, I'm designed and this relationship that I have with you is one that I'm meant to do this in your power. I'm meant to do this in your energy, Lord. So let's start now rather than after I've, you know, come to the end of mine. And that's a principle of, of what it looks like, and it's a step of what it looks like in, in maturing more and more in our relationship with him. Listen, when, we, when you find yourself sitting down to read God's word and you're distracted by everything that's going on, man, that's your prayer list right there. Close it up and say, okay, Lord, this is what's rumbling around in my head. This is the prayer list that you've given me for right now. I, di- I just want to get these things and put them on your plate 
so that I can concentrate on what it is that you have for me from your word today. You know, uh, our, our daily prayer list is the stuff we wake up with ringing around in our head in the morning. You know, he wants it from us. He wants us to hand it to him. Man, I really believe that a church is meant to accomplish 99% of what they accomplish through prayer than by their working. Not that we shouldn't be working, but the power that God has to be initiated through prayer. And, 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 I, and I believe that's an example of working with his energy. Is, is, you know, it's just incomparable compared to our little toiling. And I need to hear this too because there's plenty of times where I'm like, I gotta get back to that sermon. You know, that's what I need to do. That's what I have to do today. You know, uh, when God can bring the most amazing things to light for me through prayer, not that involve, incorporated with studying the scriptures and things like that, or, or that conversation I could have with that person, so much more can be done in that person's heart initiated through prayer before I even talk with them. So, um, I would argue that's when we're getting anything done, is when he's doing it, by his power, by his energy. Um, I, I'll close with this. Some of you caught this through Facebook. You know, I, I have, there's some family friends of ours that um, back in Rapid City, that everything was great in, in, in uh, their life. They have two high school girls. And, and on Friday morning, one of their daughters um, experienced a brain aneurysm. And life changed immediately. Um, at that moment, and it's still touch and go. She's had a surgery, but they're waiting for her to recover enough for her to be transferred to, to um, a more experienced hospital in this area. My prayer for them is what I know God does in these situations. And I, and I know that a lot of you would agree with this, having been through some situations like this. And that is that God's grace is there to bring us through what his will brings us to. And maybe you've experienced that of an emergency that you look back on that and you're like, I, I've never experienced a grace like that again since, since then. But his grace matched that moment and carried me through. And that's kind of the way his, he works. And I know that that family, I mean, this is a solid believing family that loves the Lord. I know that they are experiencing God's grace in a deeper way through this than I could possibly may ever experience in my lifetime. And his energy and his strength is there when we need it. And Paul is, is living that out for us as he's teaching on this. Christ is meant to be our treasure, our goal of maturity. He's meant to be our method. And he's meant to be our source of energy. He's our everything. He really is. I'm going to close in prayer and then the worship team's going to come up and lead us in one last song. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for this amazing design that he could live within us. And Lord, as we move into the practical things going on in this letter to the Colossians, 
I pray, Lord God, that you would sink these truths deeply into our hearts and minds. I pray, Lord God, that you would bring us even to points of need, those, those points that we don't want to be in, Father. Lord, half the time we're praying that we won't face them. But Lord, I pray that you bring us to points, Lord, where we are confronted with our need for your energy with our need for you to empower us in our toil and struggle. Lord, if it means that we could see Christ more fully, experience him more deeply, Lord, we pray that that might be our goal. When we stand in eternity before you one day, we'll be glad for it. Lord, I just thank you for this truth. I thank you, Lord God, for who Christ is, that he is our everything. Thank you for giving him to us. You didn't have to. You could have kept him away from us. But you've given Christ to us to dwell within us. Lord, I just pray that you bring us closer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.